0: Welcome to 900 Ackland Avenue. This is the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. This episode is from a sermon J.P. Conway preached on January 19th, 2020. The sermon was on John chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. Thanks for joining us. Jill's house this weekend over near Percy Priest. Jill's house is a ministry that provides respite care for children with disabilities. So we have Spencer and Paul and Bodie and Jade and Lake and DJ, and they each have a buddy for the weekend that they're with. So prayers with them, uh, and I appreciate all, all that they're doing there. Start with the trivia tr- question this morning. What is the state animal? of Tennessee, the raccoon, which is odd. I've never had dealings with a raccoon that left me feeling inspired. Uh, I've never seen a raccoon and thought, you know, we ought to make that our our state animal. But um, humans are interesting about animals. We, We find animals that we identify with. You might have heard the expression, spirit animal. Or people say, you know, what what would your spirit animal be? And people say, owl or giraffe or tiger or whatever that might be. And oftentimes, we choose these animals as our mascots. Americans are really into mascots for high schools and colleges and various teams. I was thinking about mascots this week, and I was thinking about some of my favorite mascots. University of California at Santa Clara. Their mascot, the banana slugs. <laughs> I mean, I'm not entirely certain sure what a banana slug is, but I, but I like it. Okay. These uh, are kind of funny about mascots. Uh, over here at, at Lipscomb University, the mascot is, is the bison, and and when the team are playing, they say "Go Bison." Even though that's grammatically incorrect, the plural of bison is, is bison. So when they say, go bisons, it's like saying, go fishes, right? It shouldn't just be go bison. They brought this up from time to time. Should it be corrected? And everyone says, no, we would like to be an institution of higher learning that has a grammatically incorrect mascot. You know, it's funny. Um, I always thought Duke's mascot was funny. I know a few folks that, that went to Duke. Has Christian origins? And uh, the mascot is the Blue Devil. And somebody, you know when that came out, hey, let's call ourselves the Devils. It'll be hilarious because we had Christian roots, you know? Uh, It's funny. Uh, I don't know if you know, we've had the football team, the the Titans, for 20 years now. When they came here, they were the Oilers, right? They came from Houston. Oil doesn't make sense in Tennessee. So they had uh, a committee that was going to find names. Do you remember... What we almost became, Copperhead. yeah. Copperheads was one of them. Pioneers was another one. Yeah. Uh, Tornadoes was a mascot, and then they chose Titans, Athens of the South. You know the stuff. A mascot says uh, a lot about your values and who you uh, who you identify as. Historically, a number of high schools and colleges had the mascot the Rebel, and we've seen over the last twenty years. Wisely so, a lot of schools have chosen other mascots because they're trying to distance themselves from the meaning of that. They say, that's not who we are, who we want to be, so we distance ourselves from that. When we live in Connecticut, in grad school at the University of Connecticut, their mascot is is the Huskies, a beautiful white dog. It's common for people to have pet Huskies, people are really into it. And, And at the games, one of the students would dress up as the Husky, his name was... name was Jonathan, which I thought was a very non-fearful name for a mascot, and there would be a big game, and Jonathan would come out, this friendly, lovable white dog, and the mascot was cute as a button. Um, But at some point, they changed the logo to a very mean looking husky, like a husky on rabies or something. uh, Because they're like, this friendly little Jonathan pet dog, we want to be a raving husky, okay? With that long introduction, I simply want to ask this question. If Christianity had a mascot, what what animal would it be? If the church had a spirit animal, what would we choose? And as uh, exciting as we might get it, having a committee for that, uh, our scriptures this morning is going to tell us the answer. It's already been decided. So if you would stand with me for the reading. This is on the inside of your bulletin. and if you want to grab it, this is John chapter 1. John chapter 1, 29-42. A few seconds here are bold, if you'd like to join with me for emphasis, feel free. This is the word of the Lord from John chapter 1, 29-42. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant when I said, The man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. He brought him to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. Which, when translated, is Peter. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus is the Lamb God, and no animal has meant more to the Christian faith than the Lamb. But it's not the mascot I would have chosen if we were to huddle up and say, "Go lambs, go." I don't know that the other team would be intimidated, right? What is it about the lamb that is so central for our faith? Because when I think of a lamb, it's not what I think of. When my daughters were young, my first daughter, we were still at another church, and when she was born, one of the ladies of the church gave her a little lovey. You may remember if your kids had these little loveys, kind of a blanket, but kind of an animal. And it was this cute little blanket with a lamb's head kind of coming out of it. That may sound odd, but it was very cute. And um, it was this little loving. She loved it so much we ended up getting it for our other daughters when they were born. And, and they they would cuddle with it. And that's probably the image that a lot of us have of lambs. They're cute, cuddly, sweet, not exactly what you think of as a mascot or a spirit animal for this great religion that we find ourselves a part of. What is it about a lamb? Lambs are good at two things, really. And by lamb, we mean like a young sheep. And sometimes in the Bible we have the reference to ram. A ram is a male sheep. A lamb is a young sheep. So ram, sheep, lamb, we're talking about the same thing, basically. What, what are lambs really good at? They're good at following. Specifically, following their shepherd and knowing who their shepherd is. We can think of Psalm 23 or something like that. They're good at falling. And two, they're good at sacrifice. First and foremost, by, by shearing off the wool of the lamb. And so that we can make clothing and blankets and various things. And sharing their wool, sacrificing their wool so that others can be warm. And some of that goes back to the, the cute, cuddly metaphor right there. But what we find in scripture, this idea of sacrifice goes much further than just sharing their wool for blankets or various things. When a Hebrew at this time heard a reference to lamb, they would have instantly thought of probably two or three different stories. So when they hear John say, He's the Lamb of God, they would think of these stories. And, And you might think of these too. So, lamb stories. Remember Genesis 22? When God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, and when he and Isaac are walking to that mountain, Isaiah's is like, hey, where's where's the sacrifice? Remember those words, the Lord will provide the sacrifice? And then right at the last moment, the angel of the Lord calls out to Abraham and says, don't sacrifice your son. And at that time, he looks and he sees a ram in the thicket, so a, a male sheep, If it's young, it's also being a lamb. It's in that family. And sacrifices that instead of Isaac. And calls that place, the Lord will provide. For that reference to the Lord will provide the sacrifice. That's the first story they would have thought of. Second story they would have thought of when they heard the Lamb of God. The Passover Lamb. You remember when the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then God brings Moses to deliver them. Moses does many signs and wonders. The last one being the plague of the death of the firstborn. But through the word of the Lord, Moses instructs the people, if you want to be protected from the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, you should sacrifice a lamb and then take the blood of the lamb and paint it, basically, over the door frame. And then the death angel would pass over. If you have the blood of the lamb over so, as the scriptures say, there was, there was a great cry in Egypt that night, but not in Goshen, where the Hebrews were, because they had the blood of the Lamb over them. And then the third story they would have thought of when it came to Lamb, most likely would have been one of the, the well-known Messianic prophecies, that is, the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. And I'm going to read a few verses from this. This is page 600, actually. <coughs> Isaiah 53, 5 through 7. Isaiah 53, 5 through 7. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And so most likely when they hear this reference, Lamb of God, they immediately think the Abraham-Isaac story, the Passover lamb, and most likely this Isaiah 53 messianic reference as well. And notice that all three of those stories have this idea of freedom behind them. That people are freed from an impending doom, freed from slavery, freed from something in the case of Isaiah, freed from oppression, and that there is an idea of healing or health. They are freed for something better that comes from this. Specifically in this passage, uh, John says, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That the Lamb, through the act of self-sacrifice, and we see this attested in the Old Testament, through the act of sacrifice brings freedom, specifically, John is saying, the freedom from sin. And I think that causes us to reflect a little on what we mean by sin. Um, The the Greek word behind this for sin is, is hamartia. And simply, the word sin means to miss the mark or to, to wander from the path. To miss the mark or to wander from the path. I was, I was driving this past week. I was over on Belmont Boulevard driving. And about 300 yards ahead of me, in, in the incoming lane, I saw a car just slowly and very suddenly move into my lane. And uh, there was a car ahead of me. And, and you know how you really don't have time to react but you're kind of like I'm about to be in a car accident like I had that feeling or there in front of me about to be in a car accident he's just wandering into that lane and then at the last minute swerved back right and uh, and I looked at them I'm not a honker maybe I need to become a honker but I just kind of looked at him like you're better than that I didn't do any gestures I promise you know but um, you know, look at, you're better from that because Sin means to to wander from the path. And when we wander from the path, we hurt ourselves, and we hurt others. Sometimes we see sin as like arbitrary commandments from a very far-off God, and the Bible does not depict sin that way. It's not arbitrary commandments from a far-off God. When we sin, we hurt ourselves and we hurt other people. Sin is not good for us. It's not healthy to sin. Uh, sticking with the, the car metaphor, um, every now and then I'll start the car and I'll or, I'll pull out and something's just not right. The car is just not driving like I thought it was going to drive. Like it's slower, it's clunky, and then I realize. I left the parking brake on. And uh, I kind of smell that, that burning smell or something like that. Maybe some of you have done this before. And in many ways, sin is like trying to drive with the parking brake on. Friends, it's not how you were meant to live. You were meant to live better. You were not meant... To lie, You are not meant to be greedy. We can insert others. And and when you do that, it holds you back. In some ways, and sometimes you're not even aware of which it holds you back. But eventually you say, this car is not driving how it should be driving. That's what it means to sin. And this is what the Lamb comes to set us free from. The Lamb comes not to satisfy arbitrary commandments from a very distant God. The The Lamb comes... so that you would be the most healthy version of you, and that you would be set free from that parking brake, from all that which holds you back. But we they ask sometimes, I know specifically in the modern context, with how does the lamb take away the sin of the world? We already have the Passover story, which seems so barbaric to the modern reader, and we think about how does another person's Execution at the hand of the Romans 2,000 years ago. How does that have anything to do with me? And If we were to ask Jesus, how does the atonement work? I wonder if his answer would be exactly what he said to the disciples in this passage. When they say, where are you staying? And he just simply says, come and see. We wonder sometimes, how does this work? How does this all go together? And I think so often the voice of our Lord is just, come and see. Come participate in it. Come be a part of it. Don't seek to understand it as much to just experience it. And to be a part of it. And to come and see. You know, we find at the end of the story here that Peter meets the Lord. And Peter was one of these guys that really wanted to understand. But gradually, as he come and saw, his life was transformed. And I want, to, I want to read something that, that Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is on page 981 of your Q Bible, if you would turn. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. And this, as Peter first encounters the Lamb of God, and he gets caught up in that, and he becomes a part of it, and even though he, he denies our Lord, he becomes one of the great leaders, and ultimately gives his life a martyr's death in Rome. That's the trajectory of his life. Notice what he says about the Lamb later in his life. Start in verse 21 of 1 Peter 2. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So he says, Christ gave us an example, and this is it. And notice how he quotes from Isaiah 53 here. In essence, what Peter says is this. We follow the Lamb by becoming lambs ourselves. Christ has given us an example. And how do we follow the Lamb? It's by following the same path that He laid. By being lambs ourselves. By following the shepherd. What are sheep good at? They're good at following the shepherd and living lives of sacrifice sacrificing our lives for God and for others. And this is what Peter did, and this is what the early church did. They very much identified with the Lamb. And we could go on far more than we have time this morning and talk about their artwork with the Lamb and various things, how they identified with it. But at some point in Christian history, we moved away from the Lamb because it just did not seem to be a mascot that held our values. It did not seem to be my. It did not seem to model the sensibilities of this world. We wanted a tougher spirit animal. We we really we really liked animals more like lions. Um, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of high schools and colleges that have lions as mascots. And. Uh, And and if you think about it, it makes sense. A lion is is super tough. Now, the irony for Christians is, later on in that that same letter, 1 Peter. Peter references lions, but it's not about us. He says, uh, our enemy, the devil, prowls like a lion. And uh, so often, I find that many Christians, and I confess I've been there as well myself, we... uh, We feel like we're supposed to be a lamb, but oh, how we wish we'd been called to be lions instead. But this lamb-lion thing reaches a very interesting crescendo in John's Revelation, same one that wrote this gospel. But in John's Revelation, he has this very interesting picture where he's on Earth and he's having this vision of heaven, and he envisions there's this scroll, but no one is worthy to open the scroll, but in the vision, he desperately wants the scroll to be opened. And he's envisioning heaven. And he then begins to dialogue with this elder that is also in in heaven. Okay? And the elder says, do not worry. There is a line of Judah that can open the scroll. And from the elder's perspective in heaven, he sees a line of Judah. But then John, from his position on earth, he looks up Because he wants to see the lion. He's very excited to see the lion that can open the scroll. But when he looks up to see the lion, he does not see a lion. He sees a lamb looking as if it's been slain. This figure is Christ. And from the earthly perspective, it looks like a lamb. But from the heavenly perspective where the elder is, it looks like a lion. Because we find that in the new heavens and in the new earth, Lambs become lions. And we also discover that the one we always thought was a lion was really a snake the whole time. And if we could live our lives from that perspective and know that we want to have a mascot that is conquering and tough and has victory... But from the perspective of heaven, it's, it's the lamb. It's the one that leads a life of sacrifice that really finds victory in the end. Lambs become lions. Do we have the strength to do it, though? Do we have the strength to go out there in lambs when everyone we meet is going to interpret that as weak? Can we do it? When we read the scriptures, when we look at Christian tradition, we come to this conclusion. The Lamb is our animal. It is our mascot. It is our spirit animal. The Lamb is our Savior, and it is who we are called to be. And though it may seem weak to this world, when we assemble around this table, as we do in just a second, we are basically assembling around this table, the table of the Lamb, and basically coming together and saying, Go, Lamb's go!" And it even feels silly to say it. And yet, that is our calling. Let us stand together and sing. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash Thanks again for joining us, God bless.